Okay, can I just real quick? <laughs> I'm getting a recommended video on YouTube that's OBGYN doctor reacts, Downton Abbey. <laughs> what could he possibly have it's to react to? Sybil's birth and death? Oh, the two times and you use your vagina in your life when you're when you give birth born. and when you die when you're born when you're born and give it's all it's, it's what it's there for so when i was doing my research i was watching this cathay pacific video and they have this like they called it an inflatable cot for babies it's just like (laughs) it's just like an egg that you put your baby in like a raft maybe if i can find it is it does it have like sides or is it just flat because i don't know a lot about babies it's like a pot but i do know that they can't (laughs) okay if you go to this video at 3.50. Oh, it's animated, too. <laughs> take, a the, take a look at this this little turd that you put your child in <laughs> so they don't drown. It's a weird thing to keep your baby in. But then, like, what do you do with it? Uh, well, I mean, I, assume I don't understand how your baby gets inside or how you get your baby out and how the baby's supposed to pull the red tab to inflate it. I like that there's a little window so you can wave at your baby. <laughs> so the baby can see where, which direction it's going as it's driving. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think that they're motorized. Hey baby, you don't got a license to operate this motor vehicle. Oh my god, baby, this baby just carving some sick wake, shredding it, driving circles around this plane crash. You baby, go Let that baby go, baby. You go on ahead and signal the coast guard. We'll catch up. What if the what if the pod is remote controlled so you can send your baby ahead as a signal flare? In the event of cabin air pressure loss, babies will be deployed via baby pods <laughs> to alert the appropriate authorities. So this is Meet Cute, a podcast where we talk about all the places that art and science intersect. I'm Lauren, and I once flew on the 70th anniversary flight from Amsterdam to New York and got free cookies. And I'm Lee, and I was also on that flight. Did you not see me in the back waving what? to you? I was there. You're the one handing out the little booklets commemorating the no. flight? Or were you the cookie master? No. I was the cookie master. Oh, I knew it. You were whipping them up in the back. The whole thing. Yeah. They cook them on the plane. Did you know that? The, that's, that's a fun fact. That's why it smells so good. It's a fun so fact good. about airplane food. They cook it right there in their little kitchen. <laughs> Can you imagine him, like in-flight hibachi? <laughs> Catch the shrimp. And the plane does a nosedive. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That zero gravity zero hibachi. would be so cool. You would probably die, right? I don't know. Eh, maybe not. Why would you die? Because, like, there's a stovetop. 
and if you flew into the stovetop <laughs> in zero gravity I mean, yes you would die the, the hot hibachi grill <laughs> next thing you know the hibachi chef is trying to fling you into someone's mouth yeah catch the shrimp do you want to go first this week yeah i can go first uh i am feeling flirty and fresh and free um airline safety videos or um pre-flight safety videos as they're known (laughs) in the biz um were originally approved by the uh faa um the federal aviation administration uh in 1984 um they were like yeah you can do movies i guess that's fine um they were displayed alongside of or in lieu of a live demonstration which was usually done by a flight attendant up until that point they uh, were usually made for the specific model of airplane that they were being displayed on, um, which seems obvious, but I think bears mentioning because the alternative would probably be generic in-flight videos produced by the FAA um, or the equivalent in whichever country the plane is registered. But because they're model specific, they're privately produced by the airline, mm. which is kind of integral in creating the pre-flight safety videos that we have today. So they were pretty straightforward. They just had the basic information that they were required to have by the FAA. Up until uh, in 2008, uh, Delta released a pre-flight safety video um, with no bells and whistles. Pretty straightforward. But the presenter, Delta flight attendant Catherine Lee, um, which is interesting because they weren't hiring actors at this point. This was just members of their staff who were already trained in how to you know, mm-hmm. deliver these speeches and in all of this safety equipment and stuff. Um, so she did this little finger wag in front of the camera while telling passengers that smoking is not allowed on any Delta flight. <laughs> and it went viral. Like people started referring to her as Delta Lena uh, because of her resemblance to Angelina oh, Jolie. And because I they... think I did read that. Yeah. 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 And they didn't know. Her name, obviously, she was just the presenter in this particular in-flight safety mm-hmm. video. Um, and the video received 300,000 views in one month on YouTube, which are pretty paltry numbers now. But in 2008, mm-hmm. that was viral, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I couldn't find anywhere whether it was Delta that posted the video to YouTube or if it was someone else who saw it um, on the flight and was like, oh, I have to get a hold of this and people have to see this because it's funny for whatever reason um but either way it got the attention of the industry and people were like hey wait a second you know uh Mm -hmm. we can use social media to our advantage with these videos so ever since there's been something of an arms race between airlines um everybody trying to produce wilder and more attention grabbing safety videos to increase mm-hmm. brand awareness, uh, also to try and appeal to a younger crowd. As we know, millennials are killing every industry. It's only a matter of time before oh. they come for air travel. Uh, so memes, other pop culture references, uh, celebrity cameos, special effects, costumes, singing, etc. All employed to try and boost the profile of these videos and hopefully, by extension, the airline itself, right? It makes sense, you know. If you're you're Delta Airlines, your video goes viral. Next time people are buying a flight somewhere, 
Delta Airlines will be in their brain. It just it's it's marketing 101. You know, that's basic advertising. So uh, my favorite headline that I came across uh, was from CNN, a CNN article released in 2009 uh, with uh, the headline nudity cartoons grab air travelers attention. Um, <laughs> and that I mean, the article was referencing a video released by uh, Air New Zealand that shows flight crew members in nothing but body paint. Um, and like, it's not graphic or explicit in any way. Like, you don't, you don't see anybody's business, but it's a weird choice and it's memorable. Yeah. And it holds your attention. Yeah, definitely. Cause you're like, Especially yeah. Cause... the first time you watch it, you're like, right. Oh, are, are they really doing this? Are they really exposing right. themselves? Yeah. 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 As far as the effectiveness of these videos, as safety demonstrations goes, um, mm-hmm. eye-catching videos might actually be better than the alternative. I can only find one study cited uh, conducted at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Uh, participants were quizzed on safety protocol after watching three different pre-flight safety videos. Uh, one of them had a celebrity. One had humor, just generally humor. Uh, and one was just the information, just cut and dry. And the retention level... Uh, was right around half for both the video containing humor and the video containing a celebrity. Uh, But it was closer to a third for the drier option, which makes sense, right? Like we like to be entertained and we're exposed to so much media on a regular basis that it does have to compete for our attention. So Mm -hmm. making air safety videos more compelling to passengers isn't necessarily a bad thing. And most airlines maintain that that's why they're doing this. Um, there was a quote that I found uh, in one of the articles that I read from, yeah, from Allison McAfee, uh, who was managing director of communications for the trade group Airlines for America. Um, the article was published in 2017, so I don't know that she still is, but she was at the time, and she is quoted as saying. Uh, Our members want to make sure everyone, including even the most frequent travelers, listens to and abides by the safety briefings. To do so, airlines are getting more and more creative to maintain interest in the standard safety information. So that's a sentiment that's echoed by most other airlines, too, that I found. Um, That the reason that they're doing this is to keep people's attention. It's to keep people interested in the video. Um, But I would argue... Uh, that you don't have to post your safety presentation to YouTube in order to keep passengers' attention in flight. So, of course, the goal is also advertising. The goal is to go viral as well, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So that study that you found? Yes. Did they say how long after they um, quizzed the people? It was pretty uh, soon after that they gave those results, and then they said that they quizzed them again two hours later. On the same information, essentially. Um, and it dropped pretty much by 4% across the board. So it wasn't long term. It wasn't that one was better than the other. They were about the same. You know, it didn't say um, I didn't look too much into it, um, but I didn't see on um, like a sample size or anything like that to see like how yeah accurate it was. Um, you know, and I'm I mean, curious too how you uh like how you measure something like that because as someone that has flown more than maybe twice you kind of know right what they're saying in safety videos yes yeah um 
so really like if I were to design an experiment it'd probably be people that are first time flyers that have never watched a safety video before right um showing them you know it's different groups different videos and then the real like if they were really going for is the information sticking you would want to you would want to test their um you would want to test their memory of the information under circumstances where they would need to use that memory right so like in the event of an emergency is is when you really want them to have remembered that safety video if if safety is your goal if the retention of that for the purpose of safety is your goal then that's what you would want to do but in terms of just like do they remember it when they leave that that to me seems more like is it a viral video is it a good video right yeah um i thought it was interesting too and i mean i might just not have come across it i might you know it was it was something that i kind of looked for but i didn't look too you know i didn't go too deep uh trying to find it um i didn't see if the faa did any kind of testing into this into the effectiveness of the you know like into the emergency preparedness of flight passengers or if any private airline has done any studies on that um it this was just a university study you know so right right, and i think too that like with a large enough sample size it's not going to matter if people have been on a plane before or if somebody you know rides a plane all the time for business um because i think that you'll kind of though you know those people are outliers and yeah, yeah like but but with a smaller sample size it's not you know that that's when it does actually really matter mm-hmm. yeah i mean i don't i don't know how uh this whole set of safety procedures was developed um but mm-hmm. it's it hasn't changed too dramatically um at least in our lifetime um and at least since you know they're have been pre-flight safety videos i mean i can't attest to the information that was given prior but it seems like it's pretty much stayed consistent um it's you gotten more detailed vape on planes i know back in the and good now they old say days no vaping none at all can't rip it anymore Ugh. whatever the only ripping you can do is the cord on your life vest and what even is the point of being alive, you know? Did you notice any common themes within pre-flight safety videos? Uh, yeah, they pretty much all told you uh, where the exits were and uh, that you should put your mask on before someone else's and what would happen in the event of an emergency, uh, how to inflate your life vest, how to safely exit the aircraft, I mean, in terms of design. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot are animated, uh, but that's been true pretty much since the inception. Um, in the 80s, it made sense because animation was uh, relatively cheap. Um, which I feel I do like a question I... also. Yeah. They didn't have seat back screens in the 80s. No. So how did they show the safety videos? The eight, eight, 1984 was when um, it started to be common for uh, screens to be on planes, 
in a, in like a general sense. They weren't like individual seat back ones. Um, but they, if you've ever been on an old plane or like, well, I flew on planes in the nineties. You did not. I flew planes in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, I was a baby pilot. Wow. Tearing up the skies, <laughs> waving to my baby friends and their little flare pods. I like the image of them zooming up next to your plane and you guys wave at each yeah, other like, and you've got a really, hey, what's up? you have a really big pilot's hat on. Uh, and then also yeah. like a diaper with a safety pin on it, like one of the old school ones. Oh, but the pin is is my wings. The pin is like my my little plane wings. How else are people gonna know you're a pilot? Exactly. Um, They're Delta branded diapers. Also, keep you dry in the skies. Yes. Yeah. I I love that. Um, what were <laughs> we talking about? <laughs> uh you flew in the 90s yeah yeah um only 90s babies will remember only 90s only 90s uh flight passengers will remember there was and i think some planes still have them rather than the seat back ones but there was like a big screen at like the front of the plane section that you were in that was like Mm -hmm. a like it was attached to the wall that would display to the whole cabin which can't have been like super great for the people in the back you know right but people in third class yeah they don't need to watch a safety video they won't get out no cool is that it for you yeah wow me bring it home okay are you ready kids yeah now you can see how hard my job is see how the other half lives see (laughs) The grass is not greener on the other side of the podcast. Yeah. So I was curious how all of these safety mechanisms actually work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's basically what I researched. And I find it really interesting how organized and tightly wrapped of a safety package airplanes are. Yeah. Like basically all the safety equipment that you would need is within reach of your seat. Yeah. Um, and, there's, and that's Boeing for ones, everyone. Though. Yikes. 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 Yeah. We were talking at work actually about that and how like, because Boeing is one of our biggest customers and they're like, it's Boeing's really going to be hurting. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So everything is within pretty much arm's reach of your seat and almost every small aspect, like down to your seat cushion is a safety device on the plane, which I find really, really interesting. Um, And it makes sense because weight is really important when you're designing a plane and size and space constraints are really important for designing a plane. So anything that you can do to keep those down will increase the performance of your plane. Yeah. So in the event of cabin air pressure loss, oxygen masks will drop from the ceiling. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, So commercial airlines pressurize the cabins to about 8,000 feet above sea level. So if you're flying below 8,000 feet, which I don't know why you would be, um, then your cabin isn't really pressurized. It just acts normal. But above 8,000 feet, they pressurize it to 8,000 feet. Okay. But if the pressure in the cabin is lost between 8,000 feet and 14,000 feet, the masks don't fall. Because the oxygen percentage in the ambient air is enough for you to breathe. Okay. So, like, the pressure will drop, but 
it still has enough oxygen for you to not feel like you're you're drowning, I guess, or asphyxiating. Yeah. Um, so above 14,000 feet, if the pressure does drop, that's when the masks fall, typically. Yeah. So where, what elevation do planes, like, fly at? Um, I think commercial ones are usually 30,000 feet if you're going on... Um, yeah, commercial aircraft typically fly between 31,000 and 38,000 feet. Okay. Which is their typical cruising altitudes. So in the mm. 30,000s. Cruising. Cruising. So I was looking at oxygen levels. At sea level, air is about or effectively 21% oxygen, which is pretty typical. The rest is made up of nitrogen, hydrogen, carbon dioxide, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but at 14,000 feet, those oxygen levels drop to only 12%. And most planes fly at twice that altitude. Yes. So people usually have about 18 seconds, if you're at a cruising altitude of like 30,000 feet, you have 18 seconds to put the mask on before you start feeling the effects of the lack of oxygen in the air. Wow. And the f- flow, I know, it's pretty crazy. That's I mean, not it a lot seems of time. Like not a lot of time. I mean... It is, but it isn't. It would... Yeah. It's kind of weird. I mean, like, you would still be fine after that 18 seconds for a period of time. You would just be like, oh, I can't breathe. Right. And the flow of oxygen is usually set to last only 15 to 20 minutes, which is, I guess, enough time for the plane, if it's still operable, for the plane to get down to... I guess the 14,000 foot level. Okay. Where where you can breathe. Yeah. Um so it's not set set to last like the duration of a flight or forever. It's just a short amount of time. Right. Cuz um the oxygen has to be stored. Correct mm. on the on the flight like So that's a good actually that's a really good lead in to the onboard oxygen generating system yeah you're welcome thanks buddy my work actually makes these kinds of systems for fighter planes they're called obogs onboard oxygen generating systems so planes don't usually store pure oxygen because one it's a gas so it's difficult to store explosive and two yes it fuels fire so if there is a fire on a plane and there's oxygen flowing in the plane it can be very very bad yeah. Um, so it's difficult to store because it's a gas, so it takes up a lot of room, and also it needs to be pressurized as well. Yes. Um, so they use chemicals, which begin as sodium chlorate and iron powder, that react to make oxygen. Oh. Um, and I think they're both solids. Maybe one of them is a liquid. And so when you pull your mask down to put on your face... It releases a pin that turns the system on. And the chemical reaction within the system is really exothermic, which means that it produces a lot of heat. And so lots of people report smelling bur- like a burning smell. Yeah. When yeah. when they're, the, o- the oxygen is flowing. But that's just because the, the reaction is happening. Another interesting thing I learned. Um, so I, th- I couldn't find much information on the mechanism of how the masks actually drop. Yeah. Um, but I did learn that the masks won't drop if there is a fire 
on board. Oh. Which makes sense because you don't want to release more oxygen into the right. cabin. Yeah. Um, so I guess if you have a fire on your plane and the pressure drops, then I don't really know what you're supposed to do. But um, so yeah, so that's all I had on air pressure and masks. Yes. I, that was probably the most interesting part of it for me because it's like, I don't know. I think it's kind of cool that they, instead of carrying oxygen, they create oxygen. Right. Yeah. How interested are you in emergency exits? I'm Keep always in mind interested. they may be behind you. Ah. <laughs> so today's emergency exit slides are required to inflate in six seconds in all sorts of conditions. Uh, that must be a lot of pressure. Yeah. I also did a little bit of research on life jackets. And I'll just touch on them real quick because they're pretty short. But... Life jackets basically use cartridges of carbon dioxide that are attached to the vest. And when you pull the tab, it punctures a canister that releases the gas into the into the life vest. Oh, okay. And that's it. why they don't always fill up all the way and you sometimes have to manually. Right. Yep. That you huh. blow into them. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so the slides on emergency exits uh, pretty much inflate the same way. Mm-hmm. Um. So each slide is on a carbon fiber pressure cap. Same. It's just like a plate that it's sitting on. Mm -hmm. Um, And when the doors... So when flight attendants close the doors and arm them, that's what they're doing is they're arming that pressure cap and arming the slide safety mechanism. Because you can open the doors normally when you're getting on and off the plane without releasing the slide, of course, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So when the doors are armed, it engages that safety mechanism to release the slide. Okay. And opening the door when it's armed pulls out the folded up slide and releases the gases and inflates the slide. So when flight attendants do their cross check after landing, it's to ensure that the door is unarmed before they open it to prevent accidentally opening the slide. Yeah. And they're, I assume, a one-time use thing. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so the slides inflate similar to the life vests that they have a carbon dioxide or nitrogen canister that's opened up and punctured. Um, but this, these canisters only supply a third of the gas needed to inflate the slides. The rest is from the ambient air. And I'm going to read a quote that is from uh, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, an article that I found from them. It says, quote, when the inflation mechanism is triggered by a lanyard pulled by the slide as it tumbles from its storage case, so it's kind of like a leash it pulls on the canister, gas from the canister accelerates through the aspirators at high speed, creating a vacuum that sucks ambient air into the aspirators through louvers. When the slide is fully invaded, inflated, the louvers close. Which I thought was really cool. Like That way you only have to carry a third of what you need to inflate these things. Right, yeah. Um, so that, that's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, and the slides are coated with a material to resist heat in case there's a fire. Mm. And they're designed to flex under a variety of weights, mm. but keep passengers going down the slide slow enough that they're not injured at the bottom of the slide. <laughs> so, you don't want people shooting down. Yeah, so we have you have somebody standing up at the top like a attended at a water park yes okay you go you go (laughs) you got a walkie-talkie down is it clear 
<laughs> okay, you can go. Okay, you can go. Um, and they they said the goal with an Airbus A380, which has 800 passengers, is to evacuate all 800 of those passengers on 16 slides in 90 seconds. Oh my god! Which is? Let me do the numbers. Not showing up prepared. It's 50 people per slide. Mm-hmm. And how many seconds per person? Is that including the crew, though, 1. as well? 1.8. Dang. So every two seconds, someone is down the side. And I'm... Well, yeah. Yeah, I bet it... Inc- the, the crew is probably a small portion of 800. Yeah. Maybe 10, 20. God. 800 people is a lot to put on a plane, I feel it's like. A lot to put on a plane. That's what I was thinking, too. That's a lot of people. There's, like... Probably 900 people that I work with. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Where do you put them all? In seats. Wow. And overhead storage bins. Mm-hmm. And and toddler flare pods. Yep. <laughs> Baby flare pods. <laughs> they just ride on the back of the plane, like when yeah. people get married and they tie the, the yeah. cans <laughs> they, to the back of a car. That's twine. what they do with the with the baby with the babies. <laughs> Yep, with the babers. With the babers. Uh, I also learned that Goodrich, which you usually think of as a tire manufacturer, they have developed a canister that's the size of a soda can uh, to inflate the slides that uses a chemical reaction similar to oxygen masks to work. That would be an embarrassing mix-up to make, I think, or a very fun prank to play on your coworker. <laughs> You put soda in? No, you just no. You you trade. You give them the canister instead of their their uh, cola brand cola. That would be funny. Um. So but this is basically all the information that the safety videos won't tell you. Ooh! I can't believe you won't get drag them. Yeah, dragging them. This is also kind of unrelated, but I learned. I didn't read the whole article, but I was curious as to why Boeing names their planes 737, 747, blah, blah, blah. Like, I understand that the, like, the 707 was the first plane that they made, and the 717 is the second. Like, it's different iterations of the planes. Yeah. But I didn't know why they used sevens, and apparently, let me, hold on, let me find the, the information. Um, so they have different numbers to denote different types of planes. So like military planes, Boeing military planes are threes and fours, and passenger planes are under the nomenclature of seven. Any particular reason or just that's how they decided to do it? There was. I just didn't read the article oh. super well. Okay. That's a good, that's another good energy to bring to the podcast, I think. <laughs> There is. I just didn't do my research. Let me read it. Okay, here. I'll just I'll sit here uh, and entertain everyone while you do. Please. Um, what's a story that's Tell in the public domain? Tell a good joke. Domain? I'm going to look up a story that's in the public domain. Oh, perfect. So you don't get sued. Yeah, and then read it to everyone. Um, so while Lauren is doing that, I'm going to take some time to read to you from the H.G. Wells uh, classic novel, The War of the Worlds. Chapter 1, The Eve of the War. 
No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own, that as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, serene in their assurance of empire over matter. It is possible okay, that they Okay, I have something. I'm not done with my segment that I'm doing. I'm going to read this paragraph, and then we can get back to Lee's story time. After World War II, Boeing was a military plane company. William Allen, Boeing president at the time decided that the company needed to expand back into commercial airplanes and pursue the new fields of missiles and spacecraft. To support this diversification strategy, the engineering department divided the model numbers into blocks of 100 for each of the new product areas. 300s and 400s continued to represent aircraft. 500s would be used on turbine engines, 600s for rockets and missiles, and 700s were set aside for jet transport aircraft. It is possible that the infusorio <laughs> under the microscope do the same. No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. It is curious to recall some of the mental habits of those departed days. At most, terrestrial men fancied there might be other men upon Mars— perhaps inferior to themselves and yet ready to welcome a missionary enterprise. Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours to are those of beasts that perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. And early in the twentieth century came the disillusionment, the great disillusionment, I have more information. Oh, yeah. Okay, hit me. Back from the archives. Mm -hmm. So basically, Boeing developed this plane that they nicknamed the Dash 80. Um, and it was a jet-powered tanker that would be able to keep pace with the B-52 during in-flight refueling. Which is really cool, which is basically like what my company is known for is air-to-air -air refueling. Which is oh, really okay. crazy. That's wild, yeah. They, they refuel like small, you know, B-52 fighter jets, whatever, from big tanker planes. And yeah. there's this new cool technology, like the hose and the drogue that connect in the air and send fuel. That's... So anyway. Absurd. It's pretty crazy. Anyway. Um, yeah, you're right. Back to the War of the Worlds. The planet Mars, I scarcely Bowen need to remind the reader. <laughs> That wasn't my new information. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have more. Okay. And then I'll, and then I'll be done. Okay. Um, since both of the offspring of the Dash 80 would be jet transports, the number, the model number system called for a number in the 700s to identify the two new planes. The marketing department decided that Model 700 did not have a good ring to it for the company's first commercial jet. So they decided to skip ahead to model 707 because that iteration seemed a bit catchier. 
Following See, that it pattern-y. makes it seem like they workshopped it a little bit more. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like if if I'm if I'm making a plane for somebody to like entrust their life to, it's kind of a nice thing to be like, oh no, we've done this before. We've done this seven times. This is our seventh yes, try. Yes. This is seven oh seven, not yeah. seven hundred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Boeing seven oh seven. We've done this before. <laughs> trust us we've done this before welcome aboard we've done this before (laughs) the planet mars i scarcely need remind the reader revolves about the sun at a mean distance of 140 million miles and the light and heat it receives from the sun is barely half of that received by this world it must be, if the uh, nebular hypothesis so has any truth older than our world, and long before this Earth ceased to be molten, life upon its surface must have begun its course. We'd like to thank the She's a Spy for our music. You can check them out the on Spotify. They're a very, very good band from Binghamton, New York. Uh, we love them, it has and I think they're coming out with new music soon, so definitely check them out. Of an animated existence. You can find us yeah, online so at meetcutist.com so and you can follow us on Twitter at meetcutist. No and if you've had a good time with us this week, this is our fourth episode. We've been doing it for a month. Far, or uh, which indeed is really cool. Beyond its earthly you level. can subscribe to us on Nor iTunes. Was it generally understood you can also listen to us Mars on Spotify. Older than our Earth, with scarcely a quarter of the superficial area and remoter from the sun, it necessarily follows that it is not only more distant from time's beginning, but nearer its end. We'll be righteous back next week. Thanks for listening. (laughs)